Uh, Would you pray with me as we get into this morning's sermon in John chapter 8? God, we come to you and and we thank you. We praise you for who you are, uh, for your goodness. God, we love you. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, what he's doing in us. God, I pray for this morning, uh, Holy Spirit, may you work in our lives. God, may you restore, may you heal. God, may you, um, in the lives of others, may bitterness be removed if it needs to be removed. God, may salvation happen this morning for those who may have never trusted in you. God, may you break hearts where hearts need to be broken. God, I pray that we don't just learn more truth this morning for the sake of learning truth, but we learn from your word because it changes our lives. So God, I pray for, as we open John chapter 8, that uh, you may do a work in us. God, we, we just pray for the Holy Spirit to have his way in our service this morning. We thank you for all the many things you do and continue to do for us as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've noticed the past couple of weeks and months, um, there's been kind of a common theme as we've been working through John, and if you've noticed that, you would be correct in your assumption. Um, John can really be broken up into two sections, chapters one through eight, um, uh, multiple sections as we move forward, but up to this point, really two sections. In chapters one through four, if you turn back to John chapter one, we see in John chapter one that Jesus Christ is kind of introduced. And he's introduced to the world and to the readers of the book of John. We see he's a member of the Trinity. Uh, He became flesh and dwelt among us. We're given extensive information to his purpose, his background, where he came from, that he's always existed. Then we see the, the calling of the first disciples. We see John the Baptist there, the first miracle done. But there's not really any persecution. There's not really any frustration with Jesus up to this point. We even see where Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and drives out the animals and the money changers. And at that point, they weren't picking up stones to kill him, even though he just went in with a whip and drove people out. But as you move through the book of John, you see that a little bit later in John 3, Jesus is sharing the gospel. He's doing it to Samaritans. He's doing it to to Roman Gentile soldiers and their families. his, his audience is wide, his gospel ministry is wide, and then you come to John chapter 5, and all of a sudden things begin to shift and change. This Jesus who was once warmly welcomed is now beginning to get pushback, and there's beginning to be frustration. It was, while he was a novelty and a flash in the pan, then he looked good and they were all right with it, but he's remaining, and his ministry is increasing, and he's becoming bold in what he says And they're finally starting to realize what he's saying. And so from John 5 till 8, maybe you've picked up on this common theme of Jesus teaches and then they want to kill him. Jesus does a miracle and then they want to what? Kill him, right? I mean, this is what happens all the time. Jesus confronts them and then they pick up stones to kill him. So it shouldn't be a surprise today in John 8 where we're going to read that Jesus does some more teaching and then what happens? They want to kill him, right? And so that's largely John chapters 5 through John chapter 8. We saw last week, if you were here with us, that Jesus made it very clear who their true father was. Speaking to these Jews, he told them, Abraham's not your father, because if you were 
Abraham's children, you would be doing the work Abraham did. And you're not accepting me, and Abraham did. And so he made it very clear who their ancestors were and who their true father was, and he said their true father is Satan, not Abraham. And Jesus goes on to say, my true father is God. And so they're beginning to be frustrated with Jesus and what he's saying. And we see only in John 8 the figure Abraham mentioned. If you read through the rest of John, Abraham is not mentioned at all. You won't find Abraham mentioned in the book of John except John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, he's mentioned 11 times. And so in chapter 8, Abraham is a central figure. He's the one the Jews kept referring back to. He, he was their foundation. And they kept pointing back to Abraham, trying to figure out how does Jesus fit in with Abraham. They're trying to figure out, because Jesus has done some miracles, he's done some pretty miraculous stuff. Does he really fit in with this whole purpose? And what is Jesus saying? So let's begin reading in John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So again, they begin attacking the person of Jesus Christ rather than his arguments. This is still what happens today when someone doesn't have a point. I don't know, I didn't get to watch all the debate last night, but anytime there's a debate, when somebody doesn't have a point, you can always refer and attack to the person, right? And that's what they were doing. Rather than attacking an argument, attack a personal attack or discrediting the character of an individual rather than their statement. And so they turn and say, aren't you just a demon-possessed, half-blooded Samaritan? Why are we even listening to you? In verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We're going to come back to that verse 51, but we're going to keep moving. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you're saying you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As I mentioned, Abraham is a central figure in this passage. He's mentioned 11 times, and the Jews kept coming back to Abraham to figure out how Jesus fit in. And finally, in verse 53, it's the title of my sermon this morning, they ask him the question, they say, who do you think you are? Maybe you've asked that to someone in your life, if they get an attitude with you, or maybe you're a business owner and someone comes in thinking they own the place, or they come into your house and try to start doing things different than you have your home set up to be. You might ask them the question, who do you think you are coming in here and doing this? So this is what they were doing to Jesus Jesus came in and they considered him a false teacher. He was blaspheming against God. He was telling people they could do things that they were saying they couldn't. 
And so finally, they're, they're trying to figure it out. Who do you think you are coming in here doing these things, messing up the whole system that God has given us? And so he responds, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And then the incredible part is what Jesus says after this. He says, Abraham saw it. Abraham saw my days and was glad. The Jews responded and said, you're not 50 years old. How could could you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus uses the term I am, which is a name reserved in the Old Testament for God himself. So Jesus is saying, it's not just about Abraham, it's about God, who, by the way, I am he. The same terminology that was only reserved for God, Jesus invoked and used for himself. And you've probably had a few knocks on your door in the past months or years of many religions that will tell you that Jesus is just another creation of God, or lower than God, or the Son of God, but not God himself. And they'll look at passages and try to say, well, Jesus always submitted, and they'll say things like, well, God never, Jesus never said he was God himself. He never really inferred that. That's us making that conclusion. And we see in the text that that's a lie. Because not only did Jesus say it, and he said it clearly, and he used the term expressly used for God himself. Jesus said, I am that. I am God. But the audience Jesus was speaking to, they, they took it that way too. So it's not just our perspective we're reading in the text. We also see the people in the text. They heard Jesus say, I am. And they pick up stones immediately to stone him because he's no longer just crazy right? He's claiming to be God. Blasphemy. It would be one thing to say, hey, I've always existed. Well, that's not a blasphemous statement that deserves death, but claiming to be God yourself is. And that's what the Jews here did. So Jesus was saying, I am God. I am he. So then how do we see in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That's what Jesus said. But then he goes on and says, he saw it and was glad. How do we make a conclusion and how is it that Abraham saw the days of Jesus when Abraham lived back in the Old Testament thousands of years before? How how is that statement true? Well, to get there this morning, we're going to look at some of the highlights of the Old Testament, one of which is the life of Abraham. I want to give some background to where we're going Um, In Genesis 12, I shared last week the calling of Abraham. And God told Abraham, made a promise to him, he would make him a great nation. This This, of course, meant that Abraham was going to have children, right? You can't be a great nation unless you have offspring, which wasn't that big of a promise at the time because Abraham was young. He was younger. He could have children. And his wife was younger. But when the promise was given, they weren't given a child immediately, Years and years and years went by, and as more years went by, that promise became more and more of a matter of faith. And so we see Abraham, in his own strength, in his own physical um, strength, he decides that he's going to help God along with this promise. And so he, outside of his marriage with his wife, has a child. And God says, no, that's not the promised child. This lineage is not going to go through Ishmael. The son who I promised 
and through this lineage is going to come, is going to come through you and your wife. Well, the problem is, is by this time, Abraham was around 99 years old, and Sarah was about 90. And so they did live longer than we do, but they were way past childbearing years. But God had made a promise. So in Romans chapter 4, we see a glimpse of Abraham's trust in the Lord's promise, no matter his age or physical difficulties. Romans 4, it says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew in strength and in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham and Sarah trusted in the Lord, and soon after that, they had a son who they named Isaac. I want you to see Isaac was the promised son that came from a miraculous birth. So just how was it that Abraham, thousands of years ago, was able to see the day of Jesus Christ, so much that he could trust in that and receive salvation, just as we receive salvation, I mean, we can look back and and believe and confess in Jesus Christ, but what did he look to? How could he know what to believe in? Well, we're going to see that this morning. If you remember, some time ago, I I preached a five-week Bible overview series where we went through the whole Bible in five weeks. We did the Old Testament in one week, and then we went the Gospels, and then we worked on Acts, the Epistles, and we ended in Revelation, just to give a, a picture of how God's Word works together. The first tip I gave, or I gave a couple of tips on reading the Old Testament. I want to work through those because it's important to how we see um, this passage with Abraham this morning. I shared how the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. That's how when you've read the New Testament and you go back in the Old Testament and you read something and you're like, that makes so much sense now because I've seen that in the New Testament. And you go to the New Testament and you're like, that's what the Old Testament was talking about because they work together. But I gave the point that reading the Old Testament is like looking down a mountain range. And I used this picture um, the last time I worked through the sermon that it's like looking down a mountain range and you see that there's three different peaks here. And you don't know how far the distance is between those peaks, but you, these are promises of God. For instance, that far off, if we can go back one here, there we go, that far off one would be like eternity with the Lord. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but that next mountain could be where the gospel is of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. They had some hints of things, but they didn't know the the time frame, but there is general pictures of that. So if we go to the next slide here, this would be like the Old Testament prophets looking forward. They couldn't see the distance between those peaks, but they saw them coming in the future. So Old Testament prophecy, then there is the crucifixion and the Messiah there, and then the church age, and then eternity with the Lord. So they saw glimpses of these things, which is going to be important to our text this morning. Another illustration that's given by pastor and theologian B.B. Warfield is the Old Testament is like looking into a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. He goes on and says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, 
But it brings out into clear view much of what was in it, but was only made dim or not even be able to perceive at all. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here, and this almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not correct by the fuller revelation that follows it, but it's perfected. So you have a, a dimly lit room and then light comes upon that room, and now you see everything clear. Well, when you read the Old Testament, you're reading about a dimly lit room. They had some general promises. You read the New Testament, and so much clarity is given to this. So how was Abraham able to trust and believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah? Well, the birth of his son Isaac provides the backdrop of Abraham being able to see the Messiah. In Genesis 22... We see God command Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the mount. I want to read this text and I want us to become familiar and see what Abraham had to face. Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, listen to the language, take your son, your only son Isaac. Remember, He had another son named Ishmael. But God says, take your son, your one and only son, should ring some bells about some New Testament scriptures here, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him there and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose And went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire and the knife. So they both went up together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. This was Isaac, the son who had a miraculous birth, who was his one and only son, his true son, whom now Abraham would have to sacrifice on behalf of sin. You see how this mountain peak is in the distance. And he's beginning to see puzzle pieces. Do you see a dimly lit room beginning to fill? As we go through this story, I think you'll see more and more candles being lit in that room, showing what's in that room. And that's what Abraham trusted in and believed in. I believe it's in this picture of the sacrifice that Abraham was really able to see and put his faith and trust in a coming Messiah. See, Abraham knew that God promised to bless the earth through his offspring, Isaac. And now he faced, how am I going to sacrifice my son as a father, but yet still honor the Lord? I mean, God, and you can imagine it, and I'm, as a father myself, just thinking and struggling with this command to sacrifice my son. And in the same picture, he wants to honor God, and then thinking, well, why would God give me a son if he just wants me to sacrifice him? And, and I wouldn't even have this child if it wasn't for God, so I can't say he's mine and not do it. And by the end of the night, after struggling through all these things, Abraham came to the conclusion, I must obey 
the Lord. This child was given to me by God, and God is commanding me to sacrifice this child, and I don't understand it, but he also promised that it was through this child that the nations would be blessed. So if I sacrifice him, what was Abraham thinking? There must be a resurrection. That's, that's the conclusion. That's what we would call it today. And that's what Abraham was thinking and believing. And it's not too presumptuous to assume that Abraham thought this way because we see in Genesis 22.5, before they went up to the altar, he said this, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go up there and worship and then come again to you. So Abraham didn't know how it was going to work, but he did say he and the boy would come back. But he went willing to sacrifice his son. It wasn't that God's going to make me not sacrifice the son. He had a willingness, as the New Testament teaches, that he was willing to sacrifice his son with obedience to the, to the father. We see in Hebrews eleven seven, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his one and only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac should your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Pastor Boyce shares with us this. It was not until the last minute and not before Abraham had demonstrated his total willingness to offer his son. Scripture is mercifully silent at this point. Though we can imagine what took place, Abraham's announcement of the mission, the sobs, the kisses, the wet tears, Isaac's willing submission. For a long time in my life, I heard this story and I thought of Isaac as this boy or this child. And we need to understand Isaac, even though he's called a boy, the, the, the word here can be lad, uh, but it can also mean, you know, a young man. And if you look at the dates, Isaac was at least 18 and probably around 30. He was somewhere in that age range. So he was not a young boy or a child who his father was just going to sacrifice. He was strong enough and willing and able to push against his father to not be sacrificed. And if we see, if you see in the text in Genesis 22, 6, it says Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and who did he put it on? His son. Abraham was an old man. He didn't carry the wood up the mountain. What did Abraham carry up the mountain? The knife and the fire, right? He got the easy job, right? He gave the hard job to his son to do the work, carrying up by the very means of his death the wood, much as Jesus Christ would be carrying the cross for you and I later in the New Testament. That room should be filling more with light, and it was for Abraham at the time as well. So his son, being announced of this mission, Trusting in not the promises of God he was given, but the promises of God his father was given. Saying, if you believe this and know this to be true, I'm willing to lay down my life. Because I'm only here because of God's existence as well. So scripture's silent of the process and how long that took. But he raises the knife to sacrifice his son. And then an angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do nothing to him. What God did was provide a sacrifice in place for his own flesh. Just as Jesus Christ is a sacrifice in place of our own flesh. You and I deserve 
the wrath of God, the penalty for our sins, but it was placed on Jesus Christ instead. Abraham called the name of that place in verse 14, Jehovah-Jireh. Maybe you've heard that before, but it means the Lord will provide. Notice, he could have said the Lord provided, because this was after the fact. The Lord had already provided. He was going to say the Lord provided, or the Lord provided today. But instead, he named it the Lord will provide, which is future tense, looking forward that this is a substitute. The Lord will provide a future Messiah, trusting in. So I believe at this point that Abraham was able to really see a picture of the coming Messiah. He was able to see a Messiah who was a promised son. He was able to see a Messiah who was the one and only son, a Messiah who would willingly lay down his life a Messiah who would provide a sacrifice, an atonement for sin, a Messiah who would carry the weight of that burden up the mountain, a Messiah who would be raised again. He didn't know his name, but we know his name today, and the name is Jesus Christ. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and Jesus goes on and he says, he saw it and was glad. I want to circle back around to verse 52. Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Both the Old Testament and New Testament teach of a Savior, the promise of God, miraculous birth. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for all of us who are waiting for him. I encourage you this morning you never turn to Jesus Christ for the provision he has made for you, today is the day you need to do that. You need to turn to Jesus Christ for what he has done. For those of us who have turned to Jesus Christ, we need to understand God has given us promises to trust in today, but also promises to trust in in the future. Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. I think many of us we, we come to know the Lord and, and we think of death as something far off. And so we know we have a promise where we don't need to fear death. As soon as I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. But that's an easy promise to trust in when you're seven, right? I mean, when you're 20, it's an easy promise to, all right, when I die. But what about when you're 80 or 90 or you're laying in a hospital room? or you get diagnosed with cancer and given a year to live, all of a sudden that promise now becomes a present reality that you're no longer just trusting in a future promise. It's a present reality that you have to come to grips with. This is much like Abraham and Sarah. He was promised from God, I will bless you with a child. Well, when he's young, what's the big deal about that promise? But now he's 99 and and Sarah's 90. All right, well, this promise now all of a sudden takes on some different matters of faith that I need to trust in. And so God waits until there is a measure of faith that is going to glorify him. And the same is true in our lives. Every single one of us is going to face death. And we can be given a promise. And we have been given a promise that those who trust in Jesus Christ, we don't have to fear death, but it actually says we will live forever. Spiritually speaking, we will live forever. Forever. Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
It's the difference between being on the ground and given a parachute and you say, yeah, I trust this. Or, or being a soldier and you're going through basic training and you're given a rifle. I'd trust my life to this. And then being on the battlefield and say, this is the only way how you're going to survive. Very different measure of faith. Or being in a plane and the door swings open and now there's a rush of cold air coming in and you're given a parachute and that's the only means you have to survive. Did that level of trust just increase? You said you trusted it before, right? Well, Scripture teaches that we are called to put on Jesus Christ. Just like you would a parachute. This is not just for one day. This is every day. Because none of us have been promised tomorrow. Every day we have is a gift from the Lord. And so we are called to put on Jesus Christ, to trust in him. You know, the Jews were looking at Jesus, and they were trying to figure out how Jesus fit into their system. They kept going back to him, trying to figure out how Jesus fit in with Abraham and this whole system. And maybe that's you this morning. You're trying to figure out, how does Jesus and the church fit into my life? And they asked him the question. They said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus was telling him, it's not that I saw Abraham. It's that Abraham saw me. That's the point. Jesus is saying, it's not about Abraham and me. It's really about me and Abraham. It's not that I saw him. It's that he saw me and he rejoiced. So this morning, have you seen Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Has he came into your life? Have you repented of your sins? The ones you know are wrong. If he has... Praise God. Praise God. That's what he has came here for, radically change our lives, which means our lives now should be about Jesus Christ. They're committed. It's not something we just try to fit in. It's not something, how do I fit in Jesus with my life? It's no, how does my whole life, how do I wrap it around and revolve it around Jesus Christ? Because nothing else is going to matter 100 years from now about what you did or didn't do in life or how far you got ahead, but it is going to matter how far you put Jesus ahead in your life. So I just want to encourage us, continue to point us back to the promises of God. When tragedy strikes, when sickness strikes, when a diagnosis strikes, you have the promises of God to trust in and rely on today. It's not just a future promise, it's a present promise. And we've been given this promise from God who always keeps his promises. Would you stand this morning as we close in prayer and close in in praise this morning? If you have any questions about anything you're going in through life or maybe you have something you'd like to meet with a pastor on, get advice on something, have prayer for something, please let us know. Fill out our connect card. We would love to meet with you. Let's pray. God, we give you praise for your goodness. God, we thank you for your promises. God, forgive us how sometimes we so flippantly take your promises and we say we trust and we believe in them, but we really don't even understand what that means until we face a reality or a situation where we really begin to understand what true trust looks like. Just like trusting a parachute on the ground is very different than trusting a parachute in the air. 
God, I pray that you may strengthen all of our faith in you. God, I thank you that you're a God who always keeps your promises. And you have promised so much. And it's not dependent on us. And I praise you for that. It's dependent on Jesus Christ. What he's done on the cross. The provision that he's made. God, I thank you that we're able to be called saints. We're able to be called your children. Able to be called your sons and daughters. Heirs with Jesus Christ. God, may we walk in that this week and we give you praise. We pray for our church. God, I pray for the finances as we, as we close. God, we want to honor you with our lives, with our finances, with our time. God, I pray for the offering this morning as well. God, may we be faithful in all matters because you deserve it all. So God, we give you praise for transforming us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.